Welcome to the Disney at Work podcast, bringing magical ideas to improve your world from the happiest place on earth. Your host is J. Jeff Kober, author, speaker, and consultant to organizations around the globe that look to bring best of Disney ideas to their workplace. Welcome to the Disney at Work podcast. Today we have part two of a two-part episode with Mark David Jones, the Chief Operations Officer at World Class Benchmarking and the President of Small World Alliance. On our first episode in part one uh, last time, we were discussing with Mark the evolution of the Walt Disney World culture over the years, and he shared with us some stories of his time getting hired very early in in the life of Walt Disney World. And he left and then ended up coming back, and so we will pick up our discussion talking about his second go-round at Walt Disney World. Jeff, uh, let's welcome in Jeff Kober the owner and operator of DisneyAtWork.com, who is Mark's business partner. Good talking to you, David. And we are glad to have Mr. Mark David Jones, who um, is my partner in crime uh, with uh, our daily work. And uh, it's good to have you, Mark. Um, uh, Mark is really good. We are recording this at the uh, latest possible hour of the day. To make sure David's kids are in bed, and uh, but this is good because Mark actually is very capable of staying up. We say the sun never sets at world class benchmarking because Mark usually gets to bed about four a.m. and then I get up about the same time and start yeah. the day. So, so here we are. It's a chemical in imbalance, Mark's, Jeff. It's, it's a chemical <laughs> imbalance. We uh, we were talking about the early days of your career at uh, Walt Disney World and. Um, and in particular, before we kind of segue into those later years, uh, share with us kind of what it was like to be best friends with the Disney characters back then and uh, and being part of the Zoo Crew, which actually remains, you remain friends and they're a group you're still linked to today. We should actually probably, oh, yeah. we should probably make sure that we jump in here in case people are just picking us up on this episode, that there will be things discussed uh, that if you do not want the Disney magic ruined for you, that you should probably shut the podcast off now. And if you have children uh, who you do not want interesting insights about uh, how things work at Walt Disney World, if you don't want them to hear those, you also might want to turn this off now and then listen sometime when they are not around. Sorry for the interruption, guys. Go ahead. No, but if you do enjoy listening to these, <laughs> Mark has great stories. <laughs> so... Oh. Spill tell all us, the juicy yeah, tell gossip. Us about, um, tell us about the real Br'er Bear. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I mean, to your point, it is a very exclusive club, so to speak, a very tight community of, you know, very, um, uh, you know, very, it's very difficult to get into that particular department. And it, um, you know, back when I started, back in 1978, it was a bunch of jocks is it because it's a very physically demanding job people are stunned you know, they think it's just oh it's just like you know how much fun is it the people ask me all the time what's it like being a disney character and i say well there's two answers to that number one it's it's uh you know you can be like a giant teddy bear like you're there and kids would come up and just like i love you goofy bear bear whatever you know 
uh, ticker. They just they'll and it's just that's nothing like it. You know, it's just heaven on earth. And the other side of it is like you're uh, like you're doing jumping jacks in a 60 pound sauna in the middle of summer. It's 120 degrees inside your costume and kids are like kicking the shins for 30 minutes at a time. So it's, it's somewhere between in between those, those two, two extremes. And, and made harder yeah. when you are on a set of water skis. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, back when I was on the ski team, um, the head. And if you don't know, there was actually a water ski show. This was <laughs> this was one of Disney's ways to to move the traffic flow out by getting by getting them to pay. I think we even charged a dollar back then to go see this show. Along, was it called? Was it Splashtacular? Is that what it was? No, no, no. This is along Seven Seas Lagoon. This is huh? Epcot. This is Seven Seas Lagoon, and it was a water show yeah. in competition with whatever Cypress Gardens could Cypress come Gardens, up with. Yes, probably have the same and, group from um, Cypress. Probably, but uh, yeah, we would go, and there was uh, typically it was Goofy, Mister Smee, Pluto, and Donald, <laughs> and we would basically uh, take the boat out, and we would go to all the the resorts. So we'd go, we'd swing by the resorts back and forth. And, you know, the people that were hanging out at the resorts get a chance to see the characters. And that was kind of cool. Uh, so there's a lot of different things we did. But the, the one thing I remember most over and beyond the fact that, um, you know, we got paid to ski. <laughs> and we could argue that, like, yeah, we're trying to come up with a new trick to do. So we, we just had all kinds of fun, you know, when you're uh, young and stupid. But, um but I remember that because when you take a fall, I don't know if anyone's, if you've been water skiing and you're going, you're plugging away at, you know, 60 miles an hour or whatever, and you fall, slip and fall and you hit the water, um, it hurts. And when you've got a, like, we could not have a delicate little fiberglass head like they have in the parks. They made these bulletproof rubber heads that, weighed and especially when they got wet it was crippling how heavy those things were and in and, and, uh oh, when they were old they were nice, used as uh, anchors for the ferry boats <laughs> absolutely i believe that but yeah that but you know there were things like that that were uh you know a lot of fun again a lot of um you know you get a lot of attention as a character but at the time it was a very physical type job and it wasn't until 81 when Tencennial came in and that that particular parade had a lot of dancers and so um, Disney hired a whole bunch of entertainers and, and but most of them were you know classically trained dancers and that we did that strategically because we knew that Epcot was going to be opening up and we needed to double the size of our character department very quickly. And so the plan was, well, we'll hire all these people, do this really big show that had lots of dancers. And then when Epcot opens up, we'll just, instead of decommissioning and, and laying off, you know, a hundred people, we would just take the hundred people and put them over to Epcot. And now we got all our bases covered. And that actually worked out pretty well, except for the culture, the the personality of dancers is very different than the personality of jocks. So it um, 
that became there were some cultural issues and you know people who were dancers and professional entertainers and trying to get their sag card they didn't want to do fur they didn't want to do characters they wanted to have their face out there and be discovered so th it was a very difficult transition period a growth type a time i guess for entertainment. and we're starting off with the character experience because even though it was a very demanding uh grueling job in and of itself there was something about this period of time mark that was a lot more carefree and less orchestrated yeah. and more flexible than what happens after epcot after eisner arrives and 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 that era comes into play would you say would you agree with that yeah i think that's a fair assessment in fact i think that up until we had the two takeover attempts in 84 and michael eisner and frank wells came on board later on that year um we were i mean the you know there's i'm sure we've all heard the joke that uh, you know the it was leadership by seance people were constantly what you know what would walt do what would walt do and uh, and walt didn't know what he would do walt would make decisions and like a month later oh, i changed my mind so you know it was hard to it was very difficult and we were kind of making it up as we went we had a general look gist of what the disney way was you know everyone had i think a very clear idea of what was disney and what was not disney even before branding became a thing and all that it was you know people knew the values people knew you know what appropriate behaviors were and, and all that kind of thing and there was a, and because we were a relatively small organization with just the one theme park it was you know accountability was easier it was more manageable but when epcot opened up in 82 uh when you know in 84 uh we were so um unleveraged we were so um we were not optimizing our potential i guess and that was the whole reason we had the takeover attempts we were undervalued on the market and we were kind of you know we were having a good time and we were still the number one entertainment organization in the world but we could accomplish so much more than we were so it was a nice family but I think uh, what we realized at that point in our growing pains is that Eisner came on board. The board of directors were saying, uh, we need to get our business act together. And one thing, whether you like it or not, is you know, that Eisner and them brought in is they, they brought in structure. They brought in strategy. They brought in synergy. You know, they were, you know, if there was a, a cartoon that came out in the, in the movies, then suddenly it was on T-shirts. We made, uh, there was, it was in the parade. We made shows. There was all kinds of, you know, uh, dolls and who knows <laughs> Well, what. and you so, need to tell your Michael Eisner, or you need to tell your uh, Michael Jackson story with the posters. Because uh, that is a, oh a big example of the synergy piece at that time. But it just shows <laughs> how, how you know how how uh how these things were being played out at the time yeah yeah and, and i don't know if you want me to uh, it was like it's burned into my memory 1986 let's take us back to 1986 um epcot had opened up and captain eo which a lot of my a lot of the disney cast members were referring to it as captain uh-oh or captain ego but um 
But yeah, before that opened up, we had, I want to say, uh, like, and again, I was still, um, uh, I was with guest relations at this time. And, uh, and I was still doing some special, they would call, they would bring me in on occasion to like help out with special events and things. Well, I think we ordered like 10, we had 10,000 Captain EO posters made. And it's got, you know, Michael Jackson's right front and center. And he's like got his hand up in the air and he's like, Ooh, you know, that, that whole thing. And, um, uh, between the time they had the, the poster made and the time of the premiere of the actual show, the, the film that was into the ride and everything in, in uh, journey into imagination, um, Michael Jackson had plastic surgery to put a cleft in his chin and when he came in, it was like the day of the premiere. He comes walking in, and we're our plan is to give out ten thousand free posters, uh, posters, free posters to people that show up to see the thing. And it's like a little which Disney did a lot of on special events, absolutely, which is smart. Yeah, and uh, Michael Jackson saw the poster and freaked out because, well, that doesn't look like me. And I'm thinking, are you? And I didn't notice he had this cleft in his chin. All of a sudden, you know, I wasn't looking; I was paying attention. And 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 his handlers are like, uh, "No, he's got a cleft in his chin. This doesn't have a cleft in his chin." And I'm thinking, "You got to be kidding me!" And so they, I remember, they had me destroy ten thousand of those posters, and I didn't keep any. I don't know what my shame problem on was. you. That'd be worth a fortune, but. Um, but almost probably not quite as much as the million dollar uh, map that I guess the original map that Walt had that Imagineer dude draw to pitch. The yeah, that's being on sale. This it's, it's being auctioned, auctioned off. Yeah, potentially a million. So, uh, so Jeff, you know, I'm sure you got to be bidding on that. So, uh, but anyway, but yeah, but Michael, Michael Jackson, that he was a character. So He's an, he was an interesting. So, dude. but I'm, I guess where I'm, we're going with this is that. Um, the culture, I, I love what you just said. Uh, there's a lot of structure, a lot of strategy, mm-hmm. a lot of synergy being brought into the organization. And that's changing. And I think this is probably a period where people are saying it's not quite like it used to be. Oh, uh, yeah. Which they still and, say you know, today. People, um, exactly. I was just going to say, yeah, they, they still say it because, you know, once it gets, once it gets to a certain size, and I got to say... At the time, by the time Eisner and Wells came in, and I do not fault them. I think that they did a fantastic job. In fact, my personal opinion is if Eisner had uh, hung it up when Frank died, you know, if they had worked something out and he got, he would have gone out as being like one of the heroes, uh, most renowned CEOs of yeah. all time. I mean, like Jack Welsh kind yeah. of stuff. So, uh, so I think that. Um, I, it's stunning to me that, and at the, probably by '84 we had 20,000 people working, maybe more, uh, you know, 30,000, 25,000, something like that. But the fact that we had such a tight, uh, up until Epcot, uh, that to me is is pretty amazing. To have a family feel when you've got 15,000 people yeah. or something, you know, once Epcot hit. It started growing a little bit more just because of the second park, but 
But our real growth, the whole Disney decade thing, didn't happen until after Eisner and Wells came on in 84. Right. Toward so, the 90s. Uh, so, but yeah, so, I mean, by definition, I mean, it had to change. Uh, it, they could have chosen to keep it small in a family kind of environment. But what that means is it has to stay small. So, and it, so at this, where is the point where you actually um, come to a place where you have you are moving on from the company? Where is that? That was eighty nine. I, um, I, uh, we they had come out with this plan to do the studios. Mm-hmm. And since I had been working in special events, I hired the talent and I hired the production teams. Um, I had gotten very interested in production work. And I and at that time, I thought, you know, I, I like the idea of being a director. I want to be a director. Well, I didn't have the chops for it. I didn't have the education. I hadn't taken any classes or anything like that. And so I decided to leave Disney to go get my degree in media production and my plan was to come back as like an assistant director or something uh, uh, get involved in production work and kind of shift over that into that arena and kind of have that path and uh, for a couple of different reasons I mean I uh, being away from Disney it was interesting how some of the directors that came on board uh, they banded together I mean I just I wasn't around to develop relationships um, that whole world is a lot different cultural wise. And it, and when I came back and kind of, it was exploring that, um, it, it wasn't the same. It wasn't what I wanted to get into. And I, I had thought too, I thought I, you know, started getting enjoying teaching and started enjoying doing consulting work. And so I kind of thought that's, that was a better route for me. Well, by the time you came back so in I, 96, really, uh, the writing was already on the wall at the studios that pro- this was not going to be yeah they're not doing this is not going to be a big production studio there was some some good posts going on there but but real production work uh was not not a really happening kind of thing back then uh how, how did you how did you get introduced to coming into the disney institute well, I, uh, I was doing my doctoral work, then I got headhunted for the Federal Aviation Administration. I did like four years at their national training headquarters. And then I left there and I was doing cons- consulting work. And I came back to, to have lunch with a, a former secretary of mine, former administrative assistant. And, um, and when I went to meet her, I saw like four people that I had worked before with before you know in the parks and things and uh and a couple of them were at um this place called the disney institute or disney university was disney university professional development yeah. programs is what yes. we actually signed on to yeah and uh and they and you know and i was still doing consulting work and they were they please come back please come back and after about six months of being hounded i finally came back so for so, the yeah, yeah for the listener um training and development at disney has always occurred at the disney university and they are tasked with that there was a book in 84 called in search of excellence which suggested that if you as an organization want to see great best practices you ought to go check out disney and suddenly the phone was ringing and the disney university started 
providing experiences for other companies who came to Disney who wanted to learn more about about best practices and customer service leadership, employee engagement, and so forth. And that led to a division of the Disney University into a separate group that was led by uh, our friend and colleague, Valerie Oberly, Disney University Professional Development Programs. And then about uh, not long after that evolution, uh, Jane Eisner had gotten this idea from Chautauqua of doing a place where people would learn about gardening and cooking and painting and all those kinds of things. And so they took adult summer, adult camp. summer camp. And so they took an older space in, um, in the Lake Buena Vista area, re, uh, spent some money on it and put some really nice classroom space and facilities in it and opened up this, uh, adult summer camp and found that, uh, nobody wanted to come. <laughs> And pay a top dollar when they could just go to their local library and take the same classes. So yeah. that got merged with Disney University Professional Development Programs because we had no home back then. Um, but mm-hmm. we did end up keeping the Disney Institute name. And that has become synonymous with Business Professional Development Programs. Um, so, For yeah. Disney. So we went through an evolution yeah. there of watching. If I was just sharing with you the other day my notes from the meeting where we were introduced to the fact that it was going to be called the Disney Institute. We were going to be part of that and uh, what that was all about at that time. Um, and you, uh, I was there in the nineties left in 2000. You continued on till about 2005. Yes. And so really the better part of 10 years with those programs, mm-hmm. uh, tell me, uh, some highlights. Um, from that experience working with working with you jeff that working with you is the correct answer (laughs) (laughs) um you know the highlights i think um, and barcode that yeah yes uh you'll have to edit out the inside jokes i guess people are gonna but um uh, but i think that the uh what i enjoyed about the disney institute was that it it was kind of like the least Disney job you could have at Disney. I mean, we, we didn't have to, you know, there was a, a, a lot more latitude to behave more professionally and more and, and kind of edgy, like talk about business things. You're not here to talk about fluffy things. You're talking about talk business things. And when I came on board, I remember um, uh, they were wanting to expand their customized work. Up to that time, they were mostly doing off the sh- like these open enrollment classes. It was all cookie cutter type stuff, and because a lot of what I did in my in my consulting work, I, I was doing a lot of customized type things. So they brought me on board to kind of expand that. Uh, that was the intent, at least, and um, and so I you know that that was that was nice. And and what I really appreciate about Disney was that a lot of senior leadership. Even Michael Eisner did not get the Disney Institute. And it was Frank Wells who stepped in and said, you know, you don't get it, Michael. We're not giving away secrets. You know, and that was Michael's thing. We're giving away secrets. We can't be doing this. And uh, it was Frank Wells that said, you know, settle down, Michael. We're not giving away secrets. It's actually a good thing. And, and, and let me just was, add to that. 
he said, mm-hmm. what the difference is, is that we work very, 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 very hard to create what we create and do. We make an investment. Yep. We do things. We spend the money. And we make the effort that others don't. Right. And it was that implementation effort. You know, people are saying, what's the Disney magic? He says, I don't know what it is, but if whatever it is, we're working really hard when we're doing it. And that that was the secret sauce is the unsexy discipline of consistently um, delivering in your behaviors in alignment with your non-negotiables and all the things that, you know, world-class organizations do. You know, it quite frankly, uh, what Disney does to be consistently world-class year in and year out is no different than any other world-class organization in any other industry. They, they focus on all the blocking and tackling. I mean, yes, they've got Mickey Mouse pictures and pixie dust and a castle and some other, you know, things that other companies don't have. But like, um, but over and beyond that, 80% of what these organizations do are all the same. And, and that's by and large, you know, as we're working with people with world-class benchmarking, that's what people come to us for is they want to get some insights about not only what are those things, but how do those things interconnect in a comprehensive, fully integrated way? But then how do we take it from concept to implementation, to reality? And I'm an operations guy, so that really appeals to me. And that, uh, that little shift that Disney Institute was attempting to accomplish when they first brought me on board, that was very appealing. Share with us your um, uh, gift when you, I guess, was it when you left Disney or when you left a particular area that you got a certain sign made? Oh, well, that came from, I was in charge of back uh, when I was in, what, before Disney even had organization development. What, part of my job was to go to underperforming operations and kind of help guide them to being more effective. And so I would go in and kind of take over an area and, uh, and then kind of develop leaders behind me and then they would kind of move forward. Then I go to another area after that. So, um, uh, I had two groups that they had been merged to come together and I was like leading this thing for about six months. And I started out with a typical, you know, this is who I am. This is where we're going. And like, make sure like, we're all on the same page and blah, 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 blah. The typical, you know, merged, uh, department type talk. And at Disney, it was nice because you know, we had like a thousand people and, um, and we have these big ballrooms so I could have everybody there all at the same time. Well, about six months later, I pulled them all back together. I asked to do an all hands meeting again and like just to kind of get a pulse check. Do you feel like we're moving in the right direction? Do you feel like a sense of progress here? And as I'm starting off this meeting, a group of people in the front row say, excuse me, excuse me, before you get going, we all have had a chance to work with you now for six months. Some of us had heard of you before. Others had, didn't know who you were. But after six months, we all uh, feel like we know what your motto is now. And we made you a plaque. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Where did they go to have a plaque made with bad words on it? You know, so I'm a little worried about it. But I, but, and there are people in the audience are like, oh, you know, open it, open it. So I open it. I get up, they put them up on stage and I, I open the plat thing. And I got to tell you, I still have it in my office today. It says, if it doesn't work in the real world, you're wasting my time. And that's my strong opinion. I think, you know, I mean, theory, academic theory and all that's great. 
up to the point where it works in the real world. If it doesn't work in the real world, you know what? We can sit here all day long and play mental patty cake, and it's not going to help us. So let's just do it. You know, I, I have and to that, say that is such a funny sign because you worked in a fantasy world that is seen as a fantasy, yeah. but in reality, you were always talking about how to make it work in a in, in the yeah. real world. Well, on stage, yeah. on stage, it's a fantasy. Backstage, and this is, again, hospitals face this. When you're on stage with your your patients, that you're on stage, everything you do, everything you say affects them. It, if they're freaking out, you know, how you act and what you do and what you don't do affects their um, experience. And so when you want to, like, if you want to kick the wall and do all, like, you know, you're frustrated about something, you need to do that away from your whoever you're serving. And Disney has that down to a science better than anyone that I know of is they have a real clear sense of what should be on stage. Anything that, that if it's adding to the experience, great, put it out there. But if it's not adding value to the customer's experience, the guest's experience, then find a way to get it removed from them. And that is how you create an experience where people walk away and say, wow, that was really worth it. I can't wait to come back next year, bring the whole family and, you know, go into debt for six months. <laughs> you know, that's... So going back to what we loved about the culture and the experience of being at the Disney Institute um, when we were together during those years, one of the things I loved um, about that era is that we were not tied down to one particular part of the organization in the sense that the part park was our yeah, classroom. Yeah, Disney, Walt Disney World was our yeah. classroom. And we really, you know, went out to all these different locations, the Tower of Terror, the Living Seas, um, uh, Magic Kingdom before opening, to, to build these um, unique experiences and got to know the cast members there. So really, yeah, the world was Walt Disney World. The thing I hated about that job is our office, actually, was only a block away from SeaWorld that had nothing to do with Walt Disney World. We were so yes. far away <laughs> from, we were in the, a building called Westwood yes. and we we're just so far away from actually being in the middle of the magic, which I thought was, again, one of those ironies. One of the thoughts I had about, oh, the other thing I will say that I loved about the Disney Institute was making a difference to our clients. You could see yes. people who came hungry to know what the pixie dust formula was and how they could translate this back into their organization and uh yeah. was there any particular uh clients that you had during those years that really stood out for you that you really enjoyed working with oh gosh yes um you know in fact you know you and i both contributed to a book where I think like 13 of the 18 clients <laughs> listed in the book were my client, one of our yes. clients. So, um, but what I liked, I mean, I, I had like a book we didn't get a chance to write, by the way, that is still sold today. Yes, yes. Still sold today. But uh, what what was nice back then is, again, remember there, there was both professional business side, but um, this this one client that comes to mind is very familiar to you as well, uh, but part of the reason it was it was memorable is because this is still when the um, personal enrichment programs were there, like all the how to 
cook and you know how to draw Mickey they were wanting us to try to figure out how to put those experiences and yeah, so we would we do a cooking together. class that was part of innovation Activity. or creativity or something you know. bringing yeah. teamwork together, exactly you know things like that and and what what i thought was interesting is you know when they first opened the disney institute and merged both of our functions together they didn't they weren't quite sure what they wanted to be yet you know there was this personal enrichment thing or that should talk what thing that you mentioned earlier is it professional development programs and personally i think like i mentioned in the last podcast i really enjoy that gray area i mean it's an excellent environment for innovation and personal growth and professional growth and all that kind of thing um this one client we had, Pick and Pay, oh, yeah. someone I want to say from South Africa. This Large is, grocery. They are chain. A, cha- a grocery. They, it's like a combination groceries and Seven Eleven and Walmart store type stuff. They had a bunch. Yeah, exactly, a bunch of different uh, functions, but um, they had an. Inst- they wanted to transform their operation, and they did, and they were very successful yeah. at that. And, but, but one of the things that was notable to me on a personal level is they had this incentive where people that were like living the brand were selected to come to Disney as part of a you know, professional development. It was also like a, an award, you know, some kind of a reward for really doing well and being a role model. About a hundred of but them they also a year. A chan- yeah. Sure. Yeah. And they had a chance to come to Disney and not only benefit from that experience and that just a long trip on the other side of the world, but they got a chance to learn about business things and whatnot that will help them implement um, improvements back when they went back to South Africa. And quite a few of the people that came over had never been on a plane before. Or stayed in a hotel. Some of them, I recall, or stayed in a hotel before. We had to, we had to train them about like this is the there's soaps in these boxes here and you're supposed to use them you know don't don't be afraid to use these soaps just because they're pretty and so all that kind of thing it was a a a profound transformation in my experience not only from just the people who showed up and gained from that are the experiences we put together for them but also they took it back and were successful in implementing some of the changes which really transformed there in one of so in one of a, the a earliest programs uh the ceo sean summers yeah sean um stopped uh i think we were on the way to central shops or something he stopped he said i need to make a call they were building a store uh four corners i think is what they called it in yep. in um uh Joburg. and he um had them stop construction and it was supposed yeah it was so he wanted to make that a a role model store like a benchmark well and what he did is they ended up adding a disney university style what they called pick and pay university to the back half so that people could go to the classroom then walk through and work in the store then come back and debrief and learn from that and go back and forth and mind you most of the people working in these stores had very little educational opportunity. Um, corporate education was really where they would really have opportunities for succeeding and growing and developing and, and having uh, an opportunity in life uh, in the aftermath of apartheid. And uh, 
I was actually privileged to go over there when they opened up that um, mm -hmm. pick and pay uh, university and and uh, see their programs in action and uh, they uh, yeah. who said like... they would beat the drum. They had these drums and they'd have everybody go beat the drum, going build the brand, don't break the brand, build the brand, don't break the brand. <laughs> Had these drums, and I still have a drum today from from Big Bay University. So, but so I love yeah, the brilliant. difference. Big I love the story. difference we were able to make uh, during that time, and that we continue to get to make uh, even after mm -hmm. Disney Institute. I mentioned barcode this <laughs> because it also yeah, it also brings out one of the crazy stories that that drove me crazy about Disney at the time, and that was uh, when I was brought in. Uh, the idea was there. Everybody was using slides, and uh, and they said we need to improve the media. And so I took a look at this and I said, well, and that was my task. I had a two hundred thousand dollar budget to improve the media. I said, well, this is what we need to do. We need to get everybody a laptop and put PowerPoint on it. Oh no 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 no! We we're gonna lose yeah. the laptops. People are gonna steal the laptops. We can't have laptops. This was back in nine, mid nineties. And they just, yeah, you're going to have to come up with a better, different solution because we can't do laptops. I go, this is the most practical, the smartest solution there is to put the PowerPoint on a laptop. And no, 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 no. So, so solution number two was, was to get laser disc players and to put all these images on a laser disc. And then to put barcodes in the leader plan, and with a wand, you would you would pick up the barcode, press the button, and then the image would appear on the TV, which was actually in the classroom in the schoolhouse, where we were teaching classes. Uh, there wasn't wasn't a bad thing, uh, but well, that's up to interpretation. <laughs> well, it was it was. But on the road, it was it was like a. Uh, hernia but on the road paper. yes i was that's where i was gonna go is to say on the road it was crazy oh because you were packing a laser disc player that stood the chance of not even working right because it was going through yeah. you know shipping it weighed, 40, know, weighed 40, pounds. 40 pounds it was the stupidest thing but oh, gosh. so people started saying barcode disc over you know <laughs> but, but yeah. i i you know i had to take the i had to take the the fall for that actually because some of the facilitators hated the barcoding, they stopped. They stopped being there on the days we would pilot programs, and that's actually how I got my start facilitating at the Disney Institute. <laughs> One person that we uh, were talking about the other day that I will not mention on the on the air right now, he didn't show up to a pilot, and it was and it was supposed to be he and Judy, and uh, what we were gonna do. So Judy and I did that pilot together, and I. I kept teaching ever since. So, so I do, I am grateful for barcode Great this story. because it did get me, uh, Great uh, it story. did put me into a <laughs> custom facilitation role. Culture wise though, uh, mm -hmm. was there something we were missing there at Disney Institute when we look back at that? What, I mean, there was some good that we mentioned. What we're looking well, at this now, was what was, the, what was going on there? The got. Yeah, I well, I think what happened was the whole the Chautauqua portion of it. Um, if you recall, all of the professional business program people were longtime successful leaders 
at Disney and and to be a leader and be promoted at Disney typically you got to be around for five ten years you have you know to have promoted kind of, from within um, yeah it's very heavily promoted from within so there was a lot of um, experienced culturally driven uh, culturally aligned people on the professional development side but the per- the personal enrichment side the Chautauqua side uh, I think like 99% of them were not Disney people. They were brought in. And in fact, the guy who ran the VP for the professional for personal enrichment side, Richard Hutton, I think, um, he and his leadership team, they basically, their attitude was, you know, after people went through Disney orientation to come and work at the professional enrich, or personal enrichment side, um, his whole thing was, well, forget all that stuff. You know, we're not like the other Disney people. We are unique unto ourselves. And that was a huge part of the problem. That created a and, chasm. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and it was actively supported by members of leadership. And it took them... A, quite a little quite a while to um course correct from that because i think you know it, it it took time to see the damage it was doing i mean make no mistake they the the classroom experiences they were having with the personal enrichment stuff were phenomenal they were bringing in famous actors to teach acting classes great and stuff like that but the, the problem was disney was losing like a million dollars a week at one point, they were losing a million dollars a week on this concept, and they they tried to make it work for a year or so. But after a while, it was just you know, come on, you can stop the bleeding, and that's you know, and that was uh, painful as well. I mean, you know, because you you build friendships with people and, and relationships with people, and uh, so but but it does it does a, it's a great reflection of the fact that culture is king. That you know, you can have strategy all day long. I think there's you know there's a famous saying. I want to say it was uh, um, uh, Neutron Jack Welsh uh, who said uh, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, hmm. and uh, and that's true. And that's why it's so critical to look at the the personality of your organization. And then if you back into that, you know, what, well, what creates this personality? Well, you need to hire people that believe in certain things. So your values, your vision, all those non-negotiable standards of excellence, the behaviors that reflect those values are ultimately what's appropriate. And if the organization is set up to reinforce those what's appropriate and then, you know, and undermine what's not appropriate, that's what determines your culture. Uh, well stated, you know, good or bad. Um, and we have so many great memories. You know, I say to people, best thing I ever did was work for Disney. The second best thing I ever did was leave Disney uh, because it mm-hmm. gave me a chance to work with you, sir. Um, oh, you're just saying that because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it's uh, what a blessing to take um, the good and the hard and learn from both of them and to bring them to the clients we work with today. Um, Absolutely. We, just so many lessons and um, and it's so fun to continue being with uh, 
people who are still very hungry to figure out that culture piece, to try to figure out how to create a better customer experience, to try to develop that leadership. And, um, and yeah. we've had a lot of fun and they doing tell us, that. you know, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what I think is great is the feedback they tell us is that it, it's a huge aha for them to realize that, you know, being world class is not some mystical, unattainable thing. And if you really think about it, organizations like Disney, you know, world-class organizations that have earned that right, you know, they don't, they do not have any resources that normal other, you know, organizations don't have. I mean, obviously things like Mickey Mouse pictures, but if you think about the fundamentals of what do they use, what resources do they use to run their business? They've got people, they've got computers, they've got pencils, they've got paper, they've got those kinds of things, you know. Every other organization has those things too. If you look to these world-class organizations like Disney, it's how they utilize those resources that make the difference. And if, if any average organization starts to reallocate the resources and, and put into play those proven strategies and tactical tools, then the natural consequence of that is they will see better results. And if they keep at it long enough, then you start to create a competitive edge, you start to create um, deeper relationships with your customers and your employees and you start you know moving in a direction that ultimately you want to move into that north star you want so uh you know to be is if you can be sustainably successful if you just be consistent with your discipline and focus on results and the relationships all the things that we share and you know that's that's the truth is that's the business behind the magic. If you're talking about pixie dust, pixie dust does not exist. But all of these bits and pieces that come together to create world-class results and to create, quote, magic, anybody can do those things. Well stated. Well stated. Hey, thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate, uh, appreciate uh, not only you joining us this evening, but uh, thanks for the ride for the last uh, hey. 20 years. It's been good. My pleasure and i hope that we didn't bruise anybody's disney psyche by ruining behind the scenes insights and all that kind of stuff you okay so, david because uh, that's that's a disclaimer that we do not pay for therapy or medication <laughs> as, as a result of this podcast but uh it is a pleasure to be here and uh, i hope your listeners you know got some value from this and i know you've got a lot of other podcasts that are fantastic so go for it as we close today, if you want to know more about the work that Mark and Jeff do, please visit them at worldclassbenchmarking.com. They would love to share their ideas on best-in-business practices, their thought leadership, as well as a couple of books that they have out about these things. They would love to hear from you and help you out with any needs your business may have. Once again, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Disney at Work podcast. Disney at Work.